and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. All right, this week, my guest is fellow G20 member Craig Spitzer. Uh, Craig is the CEO of A to C Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, a company he co-founded in 2007 with the mission of assisting clients to achieve their business objectives through the use of new and existing technologies. Craig founded his first corporation, Alliance Consulting Group, at age 29 in 1994. ACG was ranked number three in the Inc. 500 in 1999 and number seven in 2000 in the publication's list of the fastest-growing firms, the only consulting firm ever to crack the top ten two years running. Ernst & Young recognized Craig as their 2000 New York City Entrepreneur of the Year, uh, and by age 36, he was recognized as one of Philadelphia's top three CEOs uh, under the age of 40. ACG was sold to Safeguard Scientific in 2002 after growing to 720 employees and producing annual revenues of over $100 million. And Craig's story and life are remarkable just for their sheer scope. Uh, He's produced or co-produced three feature films, was a founding investor in businesses including two successful nightclubs, and sat as director and chairman for Halcyon Jets and on the board of trustees of the Kiskey School, uh, which he attended as a boy. Our conversation ranged from the streets of Pittsburgh to the beaches of St. Barth's, from chance meetings with Larry Ellison through personal friendships, with people from Dick Vermeil to Michael Strahan to Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, it's a life touched by the triumph of a hugely successful business and the tragedy of 9-11 in very vivid terms. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say our conversation was one of the most fascinating I've had so far, and I, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Now, our second segment features Craig's unique wisdom on the role of relationships and selling. As a longtime student of enterprise selling myself, I promise you, this is a master class on the approaches and personal habits that lead to sales success. Relationships are key, of course, but Craig goes way beyond the usual blotty blah to share his thoughts on the importance of being both interested in and interesting to the people you want to get to know better, and a sequence on how to seed, harvest, and just enjoy the kinds of relationships that propel a business and a life forward. I really think you're going to enjoy this one. Don't forget to tell your friends when it's over, subscribe and rate us on whatever podcast app has me in your head right now. All right. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Craig Spitzer. All right, I'm here today with Craig Spitzer. Hello, Craig. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Glad to be here in warm Boston. <laughs> it is a balmy 13 today. I think it's warmed up from uh, from one uh, last week. Brutal. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming out to spend some time with us today. And um, I really want to start just by getting to know you a little bit. And let's start with uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Wyckoff, New Jersey. 
North Jersey, about uh, 20 miles from New York City. I heard a prior answer that was 20 miles from the George Washington Bridge, <laughs> but I'm going to uh, assimilate with uh, New York City or that's associate a, with New York City. You have better, clearly better positioning yeah. sensibilities. Um, and uh, my father is from uh, Brooklyn, New York. My mother's from Pittsburgh. So I ended up going to uh, boarding school out at uh, Kiski Prep, about 20 miles outside of Pittsburgh from my last three years of high school. Any brothers and sisters? I have a brother, an older brother who's got two kids, one in college, one in high school. What was the dynamic with you two? Were you guys competitive, or he beat you down as a little brother? or? or uh... My brother uh, my brother and I are very close and very, very different. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. We have... Many of the same personality traits, but just deal with it completely different. Um, I'm a younger brother, and I am super over-the-top competitive, and he is the polar opposite. So um, once I got to be as uh, as big as him, I think some of the beating down probably stopped, <laughs> but he's still my older brother, and I have tremendous respect for him. Um, did did uh, either or both of your parents work? Yes, uh, actually both. Uh, my father uh, was a uh, marketing strategist. Was actually a madman back in the uh, madman days on um, on Madison Avenue in the city. In the city. Which agency? Um, he started out at a larger agency that I'm not remembering the name right now. Um, but I always thought it was cool watching Bewitched because it was the same type of old school company that uh, Darren worked for. And then he started his own. My dad was an entrepreneur. He had a small. Um, it was low tech now, high tech then. Did a lot of um, marketing strategy work in the robotics field um, when it was first starting, which was interesting. In New York City, he had a company called Jarman Spitzer and Felix and um, was just a, uh, a really uh, interesting, uh, uh, had an interesting career in the advertising world. Um, and I loved going to work with him. And I think that I got a lot of what I like doing now by watching my dad doing it along the way. Oh, it had to be cool. Yeah. Fascinating, fun. He did it in New York City. Um, Of course, when I was home for the holidays, I would go in to do anything, even if it was just cleaning out a storeroom just so I could be involved, which was a lot of fun. Good for you. Um, My mother, mother, very interesting. My mother grew up in Pittsburgh, went out to Indiana University for college, and then went to New York right after college. Um, Worked in a number of different things um, and uh, met my dad and didn't work for a while. Then uh, went back to school and became an English teacher. Then went back to... uh, Went to work when my dad opened up his first company, doing his books, and became a bookkeeper. Decided to go back to school and became an accountant, and ended up running uh, the um, tax accounting department for Sequel Corporation in New Jersey. So she's still w- with us. She is. Both my parents are doing great. They live in Pittsburgh and are tremendous, uh, tremendous motivation and mentors and advisors to me almost daily. Now, um, unusual for a woman of that generation to have that kind of an arc. She must have been uh, an extraordinary person. Yes, she is an extraordinary person. She is um, tough. She is dedicated. She works hard. She's up early to sleep late, gets it done. And, uh, you know, um, was definitely uh, different in that area to the point that when my dad watches Mad Men, uh, my mom says, I don't need to watch that. I had to experience it. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, it's very interesting to me that, that, you know, you get, you get that, that love of business and the energy of it and even entrepreneurship, not to mention marketing and sales from your dad and then drive and intensity and focus and those things from your mom. It's, uh, rarely works out that clean, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, interesting. 
All right, so uh, did you pick uh, University of Pittsburgh because you had family there, or what was the affinity to, uh, to, go, to go to Pitt? Um, you know, I, uh, I, I was a very competitive athlete in high school. Um, I wrestled um, and played soccer, but wrestling was really my sport. And I um, was at a small boys, uh, all boys boarding school, Kiski Prep, which was great for me at the time. And when I graduated, I wanted to, um, I realized I probably wasn't uh, going to wrestle in, at college if I went to a big school, but I wanted to go to a big school. I had some knee issues, so I looked at a few big schools and I just loved Pitt. Yeah. I you, loved it. Your visit, you fell in love. I loved it. I always loved Pittsburgh from my grandparents uh, living in Pittsburgh when I was growing up. So I grew up going to the Steelers and the, and, and the Pirates and the Penguins games. We went out for uh, Thanksgiving every year, and Pittsburgh was really my second home. I still say that I'm from uh, Wyckoff, New Jersey, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right. Um, and and I went to Pitt, and I loved it, and it was one of my top choices. I got in, and I was thrilled to go. Had an amazing, fantastic, fun experience, um, and you know, really got into the uh, the whole community there. What did you major in? I majored in economics. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were at school, or not really? And not really. I went to college. My mother, being an accountant, and yes, being tough and uh, you know aggressive in pushing us through to work hard for what you want and um, and and be focused and have a purpose and all that. Um, so I went to college as a math major. Um, after about three weeks in college calculus, I was like, what on earth am I doing in this <laughs> class? Um, so I still like numbers, but I like the story around them better. And I like the idea of um, the career discussions that my dad and I always had. So I moved over to economics and I loved it. Um, I, um, I really loved learning the derivation of uh, the usage of money and banking and commerce and then everything that goes with it and how it affects on a micro and macro level, and I still find it fascinating. Yeah. The dismal science. Yes. <laughs> um, did you, uh, what was your first job out of school? My first job out of school was at Bear Stearns in New York City, which used to be a prestigious thing sure. until uh, a few years ago when it was bought for a few dollars by J.P. Morgan Chase. But I worked, um, I went into the uh, the training program right out of college, worked going through all the different departments uh, in Bear Stearns and learned uh, from somewhat afar um, as a really low-level person involved in the process, everything from corporate finance to the trading floors to the different areas, again, in investment banking and um, even the operational aspects of clearing, et cetera. Um, and I found it all fascinating. Um, I uh, love the excitement of the trading floor uh, because of the probably the, 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 the constant negotiating and sale of, of, of what was going on. Um, and uh, I was there in uh, 1987 when I started, so if you do the math, you see that was uh, when the first real stock market, uh, uh, it was a 508-point drop, which at the time was huge. Um, so uh, it was an interesting experience and fantastic. Did you um, and did that drive you out when the, when the market fell fell apart in the, in the late eighties? There, you know what it, I, I I loved I loved being there. I loved the environment, and I was sure that I was going to stay on and be on Wall Street forever. Um, then that happened, and it really thinned out uh, a lot of the opportunities. Of course, uh, at least for a couple of years, and it was the idea of uh, going back to school to get my MBA. So I started to apply. Um, 
took my GMATs and started to apply for some co- to some colleges for my MBA, some graduate schools, and um, and then I started to uh, listen to a bunch of my friends who were in sales and technology, which at the time was really starting to to take off and um, in a lot of different areas. It was an interesting time, so I jumped uh, out of. I started interviewing for a lot of sales jobs. And uh, decided to go work for, at the time, a uh, division of IBM that was the IBM Product Centers that spun off. Uh, it was the direct sale of PCs. So I went from, um, from Wall Street, decided not to go back to school, and jumped into tech sales. So IBM, um, at that point, was a great place to learn how to sell to enterprise customers. The best. Um, as good as any, I'll say. When, you, when you, you reflect on that experience as a young person, sort of new to sales, what did you walk away from that that training program there? That that maybe you know something you still think about or still that you've incorporated into your repertoire today. I would say I walked away with a, with a number of different things, um, but two that I can point to um, specifically are one: I knew that I needed to do something in the training class to stand out because I just like to stand out in something whenever I go into something. And um, I also knew that I wasn't a great student, so I wasn't going to be the most knowledgeable about all the products. And I wanted to understand the cadence of the sales call, but I probably wasn't going to be able to go through all of the acronyms with 100% surety like other people in the class was. But I knew that I knew what I had to, I knew that I had to get in the room first. And so um, I became great at a cold call. I was a great cold caller, and I love the idea of understanding the cadence of the sales call, which I think that IBM is great at making sure that you know how to do. The IBM sales training is great at knowing that you know how to get a meeting and know what to do when you're at the meeting. What's the secret to great cold calling? Great cold calling is one, understanding that you have seconds to get somebody's attention. And that's to get their attention just to stay on the phone. And then you have seconds to get them to listen to what you have them on the phone for. And then you have seconds, maybe a couple of minutes, to get them to listen enough to agree to see you. And then you have even a couple more seconds to agree when that sale is. You know, it's funny. It strikes me how how much like great you know marketing communications that is. Like I, I tell people all the time, you got to lead with a shiny object out front. You know that explains to me why it's worth spending the next you know thirty seconds talking to you. You know, um, I had somebody come into my office. Should I tell these things? Yeah, this is like, great. I had somebody come into my office yesterday. I was I had a somebody in the office that we're working on either bringing in doing some partnership with um, someone who's been in an ancillary industry for a while, do some lead sharing or whatever. And he's in my office, and I called one of my um, recruiters in, and I said, um, just give us the, the technical description of some of the types of people that we're hiring around this project. And he started talking about who the client was, where it was located, some of the soft skills. And I said, just the technical skills. And then he got a little bit more into it, and after the third time I said it, he gave the technical skills. Great guy, successful recruiter, you know, getting going a little bit, but was successful. Right. Um, I then said, okay, you know, that's fine. Finished my meeting, and I went over to his desk afterwards. And I said, listen, you got to know that there's some people who will ask you a question, 
And if you don't give them the exact subject matter that they're looking for inside of a few seconds, they will turn you off and you will never get another meeting with them, never get another minute with them. And that's what you did in there. I asked for the technical skills. That's what I wanted. What if I was sitting there and I didn't even want that other information exposed in the office? It's funny that, that that sensibility becomes habit in the people that are effective, you know, at that at, the, at that job, right? At, at opening up opportunities and engaging with others. So much of it is getting to the point and then listening hard to respond to, you know, whatever, whatever the prospect, you know, volunteers back, right? Um, so important. So you're going to crack up as we're, we're sitting here and, and not on camera. One thing that I learned and latched onto like nothing professionally I've ever latched onto before in this sales training because in the first couple days, even though I, I, I didn't study as much as I should have, you know, par for the course for me, I didn't go down there knowing I was going to get hundreds on all the tests. I knew that all I needed to do was pass them, but I knew what I was down there for. And um, when I say down there, the training was in Atlanta. Sure. Um, and so, and I saw people getting nervous when they were getting asked questions. I saw people in the first social hour that we had, which I was always pretty good at that aspect of it, um, at, at the end of the first day, not looking at each other and answering questions. So the first thing I said when I walked into the next room is, no matter who looks at you, you give them eye contact until the lights are out and they push you out the door. And I literally just came in and whoever asked me anything, and by the end of the sales training, one of the things that these sales trainers would do is they would try to distract you in the middle of the stuff. And all I did was just kept talking but kept eye contact. Yeah. And that yeah. got them me through all of it. It's funny. That, that is, that's, again, another one of those habits that makes people effective because people feel an obligation to, to reciprocate what they get, right? And if you give them kindness, they respond with kindness. If you try to solve their problems, they try to solve yours. If you pay attention, they, they do the same. Yeah. And so if you're trying to get someone to pay attention to whatever it is, got to pay close attention to them. And it is remarkable that, that people seem not to, not to get that. You know? It is. So fundamental in it, business and in life. Yeah, it is. I've developed a nice friendship over the past few years with Coach Dick Vermeil. Oh, great. Um, and he and I have had some great conversations about leadership, which is all about developing relationships with the people that you're leading. And one of the things that he has at the core of every aspect of, um, of every uh, discussion about, um, about leadership and relationship uh, is that um, is care and respect. And, and to be respected as a leader, people really need to feel that you care and, and respect them. And, and sometimes at least respecting them. And, and so, yeah, you want people, when you walk into a room, to know that you care, but at least respect. And respect is eye contact. Sure. I say that to my three-and-a-half-year-old son. Yeah. You know? yeah, they don't, they don't care what you know until they, until they know that you care. Uh, that's one of the things that we say in our in our in our program, and I think it's um, as I said, I think it's true in every aspect of life that you gotta you gotta have that. People say that that was always Bill Clinton's magic gift. Well, he's amazing. Um, is that is that you know you have a conversation with Bill and he's looking just at you. He's focused on no matter how many people in the room, how many of them are more important yeah. in some grand scheme. I think very effective leaders. Um, they they have that ability. You know, uh, you know. I always love the Peter Drucker quote that. 
that uh, you know people have all these complex definitions of leadership, and Drucker always said, you know, a leader is someone people follow, um, <laughs> and I and I love that yeah. because what it says is, you know, you have to be worthy of that, you know, and it starts it starts with you know respect, it starts with caring. Well, we're going to talk a lot about relationships and selling in our second segment, and I'm really looking forward to that. So, so take us back to so you get out of this IBM training program, and what was your experience like at Big Blue? So I was there for three years. It actually spun off from um, IBM to 9X, which was one of the old phone carriers. Yeah, yeah, yes, and it was in the 9X business centers, right. um, which then was sold off to Computerland, and I think it's Intercom now. But it was that whole reseller channel. Right. And quite honestly, it was great. I was there for three years. Um, you know, I made a little bit of money, um, but it was more about learning how corporate America utilized technology and how it was sold and how the profit margins worked on the product side, how the, um, the everything from, from the cold call to getting on vendor lists, just everything involved with the corporate sale. And it was a great experience and it was a great network. Um, I met a lot of great people, many of which I'm still friends with. And after the, it was a recent uh, kind of takeover from 9X to Computerland, I looked around and realized that there were some regional managers who are now branch managers, and that probably didn't bode well for people moving up from second or third year sales into branch manager. So I figured I might want to start looking a little bit, and all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, I got a call from somebody who had a newly started up IT consulting uh, company. And this was in 1993, when the enterprise application development world really just started to flourish. A lot of the people were coming over from India and Asia and, and, and with, with new skill sets bringing to the market, et cetera. Um, and a lot of startups kind of happened then, some of the real big ones like Maztec out of CMU and some of the others. I went over and it was one guy from IBM, one person who was kind of a salesperson entrepreneur, and one person who was a CIO, a chief information officer at one of the local banks that ended up being a regional or national bank. And um, they had a, a, uh, a new account um, uh, that the SmithKline Beecham that they wanted somebody to manage, and I joined them. And I saw this um, really interesting area of pure service and basically matching people's skill sets with needs that were internal at the um, organizations as it related to um, systems integration more so at the time. And, um, and I liked it. And it was a pretty clean business. You know, you pay people X, you have such and such a cost, you bill them out at X, and you can package them either in a staffing hourly situation or a project situation. And it was an interesting growth situation with these three guys. Um, and then about six months in, um, I started to see some cracks in their armor, but I really liked the industry. Right. So I started to talk with uh, somebody who I had gone through the IBM sales training with, and we said, this is great. We're going to do this. And so a year after joining that company in 1994, uh, we jumped out and started my first uh, IT consulting staffing company called Alliance Consulting. Tell us about 
you know, riding that curve, right? So in the early days, you're in growth mode with that business. You know, you, you want to, you know, manage cash flow. You say it's a it's a clean business. It is, but you got to stay on top of your metrics. Um, otherwise, you're going to start burning cash and you can't do that in a business like that. So tell us about the sort of scale phase of that company. As the world was changing around you, how do you steer the ship so that you're growing at a healthy rate on the cash flow your business can generate? At the time, the uh, technology stocks in the stock market uh, valuations were uh, in, in the uh, microchip area were all book-to-bill ratio. And I used to trade stocks on the book-to-bill ratios every month. And um, then uh, we started to trade on the different um, the storage companies because it was all sold in conjunction with each other. And so, um, interestingly enough, after not really... Um, you know, I made enough money. I lived in New York City, and so I was living check to check, um, but made a little bit of money trading some stocks, which was our startup money. And um, so we started up. We got uh, a few people in billable situations at companies. We went out. We got a few SBA loans. And we uh, really, in that business, you're funding your payroll. And we bootstrapped. And we bootstrapped to where we uh, we sold with uh, with with um, urgency and aggression and big smiles on our face um, in Philadelphia, in New York City, and in Boston. And we uh, opened up uh, subsequently very quickly after uh, getting Lehman Brothers, another um, great old company in New York City, uh, as an account, opened up a New York City office. Um, We then started doing some business up in Boston and opened up a Boston office, all bootstrapping, all moving our, our, our profits forward and paying for office space, paying to bring in a new account manager, paying in to bring in a new um, recruiter, and subsequently built up uh, revenue uh, in the flat-out bootstrap, aggressive sales, bringing people on, being paid for, and not making the money ourselves. I mean, we lived fine, but not making, uh, not not holding it in, but uh, really growing quickly in the complete bootstrap uh, um, model to where we grew from zero to $100 million in six and a half years. And uh, we grew to $60 million in uh, pure uh, organic sales and growth. And then we went out and we raised some venture capital money to where we built uh, a bunch of new service offerings and grew another uh, two years after that and got to $100 million in revenue in six and a half years. All right. So you get Alliance to a place where now you got a $100 million business from this little, this little staffing thing that you started way back when. Uh, what was the end of your journey there? So um, it was a great, great, great time. Um, one of the great companies, uh, you know, I, I, I can see, I'm, I'm sure, the look on my face. I mean, it was just an amazing place, an amazing group of people, and we were, we were doing very well. And, uh, and then uh, it was right around uh, 2000 when uh, the bubble started to kind of burst a little bit, um, and I had competitors who, of course, were selling for... 20 times revenues um, and um, and we're doing quite honestly business on startups that were that were going down also sure. and I had this really um, blue chip 
client base um, of companies across industries in eight different cities across the country with a with a, a an aggressive great team moving it forward um, so we were gonna keep going instead of kind of jumping off and then you know we had a, a, a horrendous experience um, my New York City office was on the 102nd floor of uh, one World Trade Center um, and uh, the plane hit and uh, seven people were killed from uh, from Alliance Consulting. It was really our whole sales and recruiting group. Um, and uh, of course, that was a devastating uh, personally to everybody involved. Um, and and, and the, you know the, the company was the last of it. But describing the company, we basically lost our whole New York City team. Yeah. Um, and I don't like to say lost; they they, they were killed. Um, but uh, and. Um, we, uh, everyone else was such a strong company, really pushed through um, and, uh, and, and, and bounced back very strongly. Um, and I kind of pulled the company back off of thinking about selling um, because it was just such a, a tight-knit group of people uh, that I really wanted to stay involved with everybody. You know, that is a, um, you know, I, I've heard some great stories of people overcoming challenges, but rarely do they involve sort of loss of life and the profound, you know, impact that that, that, that has on, on people. And what did you take away from that experience as a, as a leader? Uh, you know, you, you, you got to first, you know, compose yourself and then be there for everyone who's looking at you. Um, what, what did, how did that affect you, do you think? A lot. <laughs> it affects me every day. Um, it affects me every day. You know, it was exactly what you said. I mean, I mean, this obviously happened in the morning, and it was starting towards um, nighttime when people started to really collect of what had happened and what needed to be done to um, next um, to, to figure out what was actually. A next step for anybody, so uh, I immediately set up a, um, a, a, a command center at the Intercontinental Hotel in New York City to have everyone from all these families get together. So I was there through the night because people were driving in from Michigan. No one could get on planes, sure. so they were driving in from around the country, and I was looking at families and, and 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 husbands and wives and kids and looking for their family members and looking at me to produce them. Um, and, and that went on uh, then as we, we went through the next few days of going to the different hospitals and doing what everyone, I'm sure, has seen on, on the different news programs that was going on in New York City then. Um, and it was a lot. You know, we got on, I got on. We had uh, um, conference calls. Uh, I mean, we had a conference, um, uh, conferencing, video conferencing, I'm sorry, at the time um, around the country, which now, of course, is easy to do at the time. It was a little cutting-edge-ish. Um, and, you know, spoke to the whole company, let them know that we all needed to kind of uh, keep our wits about us, um, both professionally a little bit, and also to figure out what we were going to do next as far as these families. We didn't even know yet that everyone was gone. Sure. You know, so, um, so it, was, it, was, it was a lot to go through it, and, and, and that was a few-day period. And then it was a lot to face people every day at the company who worked with people who, who the other day who weren't there anymore yeah. um, to help them 
and help me <laughs> deal with themselves and deal with doing our jobs. I mean, we're in a billable situation. Sure, um, and sure. I have to say, everybody was back to work hard the next day, which was very impressive. Um, and, uh, and then it was to then deal with everything with a lot of these families who at the time didn't know that they were going to be getting money from the government. So there was different people who needed financial assistance just to pay their rents and their mortgages and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I can keep going on. It was a lot. Um, you know, I pulled a number of things. Um, one thing I will say is, um, is that, uh, there's nothing like humility and honesty um, in front of everybody to to really um, to really gain uh, credibility and, and 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 trust and um, and and as as it relates to you know developing a, a, an environment for teamwork um, and um, you know from a humanity standpoint um, the fragility of life is I think what you you really learn. More than anything, I mean, yeah. quite honestly, I watched 3,500 people fall as the building collapsed. And as we learn later, I watched 3,500 people die all at once and in a matter of a few seconds. So you realize people, and the people who were there were the people who were, I mean, I, I wasn't there because I was late. I was supposed to be at the meeting, and I was late. Now I'm late a lot, although it was early today. Um, and uh, and, and I, w I was late a lot, and I was late. If I was there on time, I too would have been involved in that collapse. The people who were there were the, uh, in all the companies, were the people who were there on time doing their job, you know? And, and uh, um, so you realize, you know, someone gets up and they go to work, and next thing you know. You know, now, you know, 15 years hence, you know, I think people are increasingly disconnected from the reality of what that was like for those of us who were working at the time. Um, you know, my kids think of that as a historical event and, you know, we think of it as a life experience. And, and so it's, it's good for people to hear what it was like. It was a, it was a day like no other. And I think anyone who lived through it, it definitely affects your perspective on work and on life and on, you know, on the fragility of both. Um, so you stuck around at that company, you, you, you're there for a year, you get people back on their feet, you sort of, you know, and then you ended up having a, a, a nice exit um, uh, for yourself and for the team, took some time off, traveled the world. You know, what was the most interesting thing that you did during that period, something that sticks in your mind today? Um, I went uh, to Africa and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. Um, I did that about uh, two months after I had sold the company uh, with two fascinating people. Um, I didn't know either one of them that well. Uh, I had met one of them. Uh, a guy named Larry Murphy, who was uh, Michael Eisner's chief strategist during the major growth years of Disney, uh, really was in charge of the Disney brand through those years. Um, and uh, a, uh, a guy named uh, Bill Ackmeyer, who founded Parthenon um, Consulting, and both had been uh, stars at Bain and kind of built up from there. So I had met Larry, met Bill through Larry, met them uh, in um, London, and we flew over to Nairobi together, and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro um, with these two guys, which was like getting a, uh, a, a one-week MBA, um, fascinating conversation, and um, as well, uh, just 
after everything that I'd gone through in the last couple of years, to watch the sunrise from the highest point on the continent of Africa with massive glaciers in front of me was absolutely mind-blowing and fascinating. And to do it, being led by, I mean, of course, a guide, and then the the, the, the Sherpas the, uh, who, who helped us um, go up the mountain, who have nothing. They literally have nothing. We would come back every day with a sweaty T-shirt, hand it to one of the guys, and you'd think you just gave him $10,000 cash. And it was just an interesting experience. And then uh, Bill and Larry left when we got down the mountain because they had to go back to their um, to the, what they were doing in their life. Since I had just sold the company, I went in and went on a safari by myself with uh, a guide and a um, and, uh, and some protection, of course, against the wild. And uh, just went out for a couple of weeks and really just talked about nature, experienced nature, met people in the Maasai who lived the way they lived three, four hundred years ago. And it was just a really interesting, interesting perspective um, uh, on things. Amazing life experience. What led you to sort of leave that life and come back and, and uh and take up a new profession. There's one specific thing that that that, that ultimately had me come back. You know, I, I, I traveled around and I met some fascinating people. I went to some fascinating events all over the world. Um, I went um, to St. Bart's one year for New Year's Eve, and I ended up um, at a great party on Paul Allen from Microsoft's boat. Octopus. I was on Octopus, and I was on his boat the night before New Year's. He has the greatest party on the planet Earth uh, the night before New Year's. And then the next day, the next night for New Year's Eve, I ended up on Jim Clark's boat (laughs) for a New Year's Eve party. And so there's two nights in a row, and then... At about later at night, as the night carried on, uh, after New Year's Eve, I went to meet some people at this place down on the beach, and I was kind of walking through about three inches of water to get through the crowd, and I uh, looked down and realized that I had water on the bottom of my pants, and I was kind of, why did I just do that? And I looked up at somebody who was saying that to himself, and it was Larry Allison, who was doing the same thing as me, didn't want to walk through the crowd, but wanted to get through quickly, and I said hi to him. We joked about it for a few minutes. And that's when I said to myself, you just spent days with Paul Allen, Jim Clark, and Larry Ellison. It's time for you to get back into the technology space. So with that, um, I uh, got a call from one of my top salespeople from my last uh, company, Alliance Consulting, who had been dabbling with uh, getting back into the business. And um, I uh, will give him you know, a, a great credit for, as I say, dragging me back off the beach. Um, a guy named Scott King, uh, a local guy here. And uh, he said uh, to me, <laughs> What are you going to uh, you know, do this forever um, with sitting on the beach? And I said, you know what? You're right. It's a great time. Let's do it. And I came back up, and we started up A2C. What do you guys do? Give us a, give us a little plug for... Uh... We are an IT uh, consulting and staffing company. We have a, a, a specialty in uh, data, data analytics, and data warehousing. You enjoy it? I love it. I love it. I love um, 
what we do. I love what we do for clients, and I love what our clients do. And it gets back to why I loved economics. I just love the idea of commerce and from a macro to a micro level, and how does it affect uh, different things, um, and how can it be affected in a positive way? And that's what we do at A2C. We add value to affect what our clients are doing in a positive way, um, specializing in the uh, management and usage of data. For our second segment today, uh, we wanted to talk about relationships and sales. And, and um, I, it's interesting. I, I feel like there's now a new generation of folks who has come to this realization that sales is something other than, you know, uh, you know, strong arming people into deals and the sort of cliches of of what, uh, you know, be, what being a sales guy on TV almost. Now people talk, you know, I heard the other day that uh, uh, helping is the new selling. Right. And uh, and I, I just thought to myself, as I'm sure you would on hearing that line, well, that's always what it was, you know. Um, but I think that that's not maybe not as visible to people who don't do the profession. Um, talk a little bit about the role of relationships in selling. You know, that's a thread line through your whole career as a leader, as a seller, as a, a service provider. But, you know, what are your thoughts on the relationship between relationships and, and sales in particular? Selling is all about relationships. And, and, and um, so the first part of anything is, also, is, is one, uh, uh, self-actualization. And, um, and that is one of the things that comes from um, somebody that we have in common, uh, Mike Warner always talked about, is self-actualization. Understand who you are and understand how you're being looked at by this person or listened to by this person who clearly... And if it's not clearly, you should think that it's clearly, looks at you as somebody who's trying to strong arm them into buying something. Right. So the first part of that relationship is understanding how that person's looking at you. And, and, and that then gives you the ability to then say, okay, what does this person need from me? What does this person want from me? What does this person expect from me? And then around all of that, what can I possibly add above and beyond any of that? And I think that's how really you should start off any situation. Um, of course, it's, it's, it's a more substantive situation if you're with somebody face-to-face, but even on the telephone. Right. That, you know, I'll use the word empathy, right? That, that, um, that is quintessential empathy. Yeah. It, it is, it's common to both great salespeople and great marketing people. And one of the things that I say to young marketing people is that, that to be a great marketing person is to be a student of human response. And that idea, you know, the ability to sort of follow someone and watch how they respond to your communication or really try to understand where they're coming from and, as you say, how they perceive you, I think it's the foundation of good communication. 
So, you know, as you're going through and you're, you're self-actualizing, you know, you, you also have to know who you are. So if, um, if I'm starting off and I am a tremendously technical person who can articulate the technology, of, and, and I've done my research so I know who I'm talking to, then maybe that the right thing to do is shoot a quick tidbit of fact about that technology yeah. that's going to grab the person in. Um, if there is um, some sort of knowledge about the person's personality and what they're trying to accomplish, um, then the idea of bringing up a few case studies that are like some of the things that they've worked on that they'll be able to grab onto quickly, you, you want to give yourself and them something to, to, to share. And then once you do that, then you can start maybe giving them some new things that they could grab onto, and that's what really starts connecting. Right. And that's going to come from both what you're selling and some of the personal stuff, which gets into some of the fun storytelling also. So you're signaling your, your worthiness of their attention in, in some way because you have expertise, but it also is this idea of, of that we feel, we feel the need to reciprocate what we get. And if someone is, is clearly adding value and has done their homework, uh, I think the natural human response is just to say, well, the guy obviously put some effort in. Uh, let me give him a break and listen to what he has to say. So that's where it begins is in that, in that self-awareness and in, in, in the, from a place of empathy with the person that you're engaging with. Talk about the, the transaction, right? So, so I, I wrote a blog post a while ago that got, got picked up by a bunch of folks based on some advice that I got from Robert Kraft you know, some time ago. And and I, I, as I was getting to know him, I said to him at one point, you know, you, um, you're, you know, a billionaire, and and you know, I've known people who are very successful, but few who are that successful. You know, do you have to be kind of a dick to to create a billion dollars in net worth? I mean, do you got to play hardball with people? Like, you seems like such a nice man, like, but how do you, you know, I'm just curious as an Italian kid from Rhode Island, like, you know, what does it take? And he said, he said, you know. Um, there's two kinds of people. There's, there's um, relationship people and there's transaction people. And, you know, I've always been a relationship person and so far it's working out pretty good, you know. But I, I love that answer because it, 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 um, it's, it says that even when you're in the midst of, of a hard-nosed negotiation, and it can be hard, that at some level you're optimizing for the longer term, you know. So, so, you know, just curious to get your reaction to that and your experience. Is it about taking every nickel off the table or, or how do you think about the right way to balance the transaction and the relationship? Um, yeah, no, that is a, that, that's an interesting space. Um, you know, um, one, I will say that one of my things that I always say when you walk into a room, um, you want people to know that you are knowledgeable and that you know what you're talking about, that you're honest, and that you're there to do business. And there's lots of different types of relationships that you have with people, some you're closer friends with than others, but there are certain times inside of that relationship that you are there to do business. And, and, and setting up your relationship around your persona in that way, allows those transactions to flow probably a little bit more seamlessly 
along the way, and that's probably somewhat of what Robert Kraft is, is talking about as it as it flows along. Um, it is an interesting, and I just had this discussion with somebody this morning, um, that uh, selling is a, is a really... Um, there's so many things to it. There's making the initial contact. There's developing the, re- the, the, the relationship and that contact enough to have a little bit of a discussion and then to have a presentation of what it is that you're bringing to the table and then to have some discussion around that and all the things that get there to get to the transaction. And if you can be comfortable in that, in the, and I'll call it that last 3% of the sale, that awkward moment of where everything needs to pull together to a, to a price that works for that person and that person's company and team and to get approval on and for you and for everyone else involved based on whoever else is having financial involvement, or, there's a lot. And there's going to be some people that aren't going to get everything that they want, and they're going to have to be told that, and they're going to have to be massaged in a few different directions. And, um, and, and, and you have to be, to most effectively do that, be comfortable and confident in what you're doing and pushing through that awkward space to close out that transaction, to actually ask, can we get this closed today? Can I get a signature? Can we move this forward? Can we put that order in today? Can I have this person start Monday? Can I have this project start in two weeks? Can we start putting the team of people together to do it? Can we bring that storage to that, you know, at that time? And, um, and, and, and you really need to be comfortable in the middle of that. Part of that is knowing that you should never take every dollar, every penny off the table, in my opinion, at any point, because why don't you want everybody feeling good about what just happened? Right. To some people, they'll say, well, if we're in a transaction, then I'm never going to do another piece of business with that person again. Keep pushing them against the wall and taking every dollar. So I guess there's different scenarios and different people, but the reality is, which gets back to me, gets back to... to, to, to the realities of life um, and the fact that I don't think any of us are going anywhere, so there's probably going to be lots of continued sales. Um, everyone should be happy leaving the table. Everyone should be happy with the value that they get. You know, I'll never forget um, my first kind of career-making client was um, when I was 30 years old, first started my first company, and um, I started to do business with Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, which subsequently Pfizer, and um, I really, we really came on as a young, aggressive company and became the largest vendor of our type of consulting and staffing in, in that um in that client, which also built one of the uh, first um, enterprise uh, data warehouses in a pharmaceutical company. And I remember we went from zero to five or six million dollars, um, maybe even a little bit more in, in business in this account. And I was sitting in a vendor review meeting, and the person who was in charge, who I had become friendly with and had been at IBM for years, looked at me and said, um, to start off the meeting, well, Craig, you're definitely not the cheapest anymore. And I thought to myself, do I say anything? And I didn't. I just smiled and nodded my head. And the reason is, is because I knew that we were bringing value to everybody at the table. And she never asked me to lower our prices. She just said that we weren't the cheapest anymore. And that meant to me that everybody was getting what they needed in that scenario. Wow. Powerful. But that... 
It takes confidence to do that, right? You, it does. You got to believe in your value. You got to believe in it to sell it, right? You know, I, I think that um, I, I think that that idea that the foundation of effective selling and particularly effective closing is belief. Um, it, it's 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 uh, it's yes, belief, conviction. Yeah. The strong conviction um, and and being convicted and and and, and you know. Um, which gets back to and when you talk to different kids in career days and everything is, you know, do something that you like yeah. so you have some subject matter to talk about that you are convicted about. Right, right. Very important to be successful. All right, so we talked about the, the starting point. We talked about the transaction. You know, you're someone um, who is characterized by by two things uh, in my in my view of the, the couple of years that we've known each other. And and one is is you're someone who has a whole string of relationships from different par- parts of your life that you've remained close to, right? You 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 know this guys who uh, who you joke that they had their first dollar. Seems like you have your first friend. Like you're someone <laughs> yes. who values that. Yes, that's yes, number one. Yes. Uh, my second observation of you is you're someone who is who is driven by by a set of disciplined habits. Uh, when it comes to you know different aspects of life, uh, that you have a, a way of working and operating in the world that makes you effective, and and I think you have great discipline when it comes to those things. I'm curious about the the correlation. What are the disciplines, the habits, the orientation that has enabled you to maintain these relationships that have been important not only in your business but in enriching your life? You know what what does it take to to have a string of of those relationships that last 10, 20, 30 years? Um, I appreciate that's a, that's a, a great um, a great thing to say because uh, my mother does say that uh, you are who you are your relationships in life and and so um, I appreciate that and, and find that very flattering. Um, I do keep in touch with a, a, a large number of people and it's out of a number of things um, the most of which I'm interested. I'm interested in what people are doing. I think it's very, it's, 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 I take each meeting with somebody, I take each time I meet somebody as um, what is this relationship about? And then how can I develop this relationship towards what you want it to be? And, and, and then sometimes it turns into what that person wants it to be. Sometimes it doesn't, and, and that's, that's life and how it moves along. Um, but that's really it. And so when I meet somebody for the first time, whether it's um, in a business environment, in a social setting, um, on the beach somewhere, no matter who it may be, um, you know, you, you, you're, you're back kind of inside your head. Wow, this is interesting. I'm just meeting so-and-so person. What would I like to talk to this person about? And then also, how do you set yourself apart from maybe asking every other stupid question that everyone else asks about something um, which goes back into even the sales call and the old school, hey, is that a fish on the wall? I bet you're a fisherman. Right, I right. mean, who? everyone says that and walks in and sees this right. fish thing, you know? So it's getting to that. And then um, after that first relationship or after that first discussion and that first getting to know... What is that relationship going to go on from there? I mean, in this world, certainly there's social media, so there's ways of staying in touch with more people. But yes, I stay in touch with people on a reasonably regular basis. Um, I try to be involved in people's lives where it's important to them, um, whether it's being involved in their charity event, whether it's going to be supportive of what they do professionally, whether it's um, being involved or helping them with something that their kids do, 
whether it's, you know, some friends like to go out to dinner, others like to go to games, some like to go to movies, some want to, um, you know, come in and say hi to my mom and dad. There's some fascinating books written by, uh, written by P.T. Barnum and about P.T. Barnum. Just a really interesting character. And um, his whole life was about giving people what they want and giving them not just what they want, but giving them a want to get a little bit more of it. And this is kind of funny. It's going back into sales a little bit. But um, he developed, P.T. Barnum developed the first uh, museum that won a museum. Actually, the first time a museum was used for more than just cataloging artifacts. It was the American Museum in Greenwich Village, which ultimately burnt down and led to him starting up the Three Ring Circus. Um, but um, he used to have mediocre to bad musicians playing out front. And that would, of course, get a crowd going because there's musicians there and there's a crowd and everything. And people were like, why do you have these bad musicians playing in front of your place. He's like, well, if you want good ones, pay and go inside. <laughs> so, you know, giving people some of that and then also being interesting. Be an interesting human being. Be an interesting person, which then drives me to, you know, who are you? I mean, I grew up in an environment where we were told to read, whether you were reading the, uh, the, the um, you know, the, the newspaper, um, whether you were reading comic books, or whether you were reading uh, novels or whatever else. Read something and be interested in something. And so one of my watchwords is be interested to be interesting. Yeah. And Make yourself interesting to people. So when you meet, you know, Billy Bob Thornton and you go back to Hollywood or he comes to New York for a, a premiere, you want him to think, hey, where's Craig? Let me invite him to this thing. And then after, you know, five or six of those, you're friends with the guy. And you're not just friends with him because he's him. He's an interesting guy. And he's interested in you because of what your interaction sure. was. Sure. So it's less about the process. Um, you know, well, the process kind of, matters. Yeah. The process matters. It's process. It's also mindset. It's valuing people um, and being the kind of person who's, who sees the value in, in the individual and who, who looks to develop themselves as someone um, you know, that's, that's, you know, interesting, you know, the, the, the most important thing, you know, about for, for the first impression is to make sure you leave one. You know? Yes, yes, uh, yes. As opposed to somebody, you meet these people that are kind of beige wallpaper. They say the expected thing, they do the, you know, it's almost like breaking through that a little bit and, and leaving an impression is just so important. I would rather be anything but that beige wallpaper. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's little little concern for that, Craig. Um, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic and, uh, and a lot of fun. Very little risk indeed of Craig Spitzer being uh, seen as beige wallpaper. What a fascinating guy. What a great conversation. Um, unique person. Really, really enjoyed that. All right, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Thanks for listening this week. Be sure and uh, rate us on iTunes. Be sure and subscribe, spread the word, and we will see you next time.